0: Morning, church family. My name is Bradley Patton, and I serve on staff here as minister of discipleship and equipping, and I'm uh, I'm grateful to be here uh, in Danny's uh, stead this morning. Danny is over at McElwain uh, this morning, and they are celebrating 125 years, uh, their 125th anniversary. And so Uh, Danny is over there encouraging them and uh, we're thankful uh, for 125 years of God's faithfulness to that church and we are excited about another 125 years. So um, if you have your Bible, I would invite you to find your way to the book of Job and that's uh, pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. If you find Psalms, uh, go to the left a little bit and, uh, and then you'll be there. So We are continuing our series in the book of Job this morning. This is week three in a six-week series on the book of Job, where we are focusing on the themes of suffering, sovereignty, and faith. So we are covering three chapters this morning, Job 29, 30, and 31. So once you get there, I recommend keeping your Bible open. We're going to spend a decent amount of time looking at these passages. So before we begin, though, let's pause and ask the Lord to to help us hear, understand, and obey his word. So let's let's pray together. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, that they would be pleasing in your sight. We ask that you would attend to your word, that you would... uh, Allow it to go forth with the purpose that you have for it. We ask ultimately, Lord, that we would walk away from this morning being encouraged and spurred on to follow Jesus faithfully in the everyday stuff of life. So we ask that your spirit would help us understand, help us hear, help us obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanna invite you into the courtroom this morning. So imagine this scene, if you will. We have just entered the back doors into a courtroom with high ceilings and wood paneled walls all around. And we have taken our seats on the benches that are marked general public. And we sit down and we wait for the proceedings to begin. Today, Job is set to make his final defense. And the buzz around us has been lively because this case is going to set a precedent. It's going to set a way that we understand similar events for the the rest of time. There's not been a case like Job's before, and so it's likely that it's going to establish a normative pattern, a normal way that we understand similar events. It's going to be a case, a precedent for faithfulness. In our nervous energy in our seat, we continue observing our surroundings, and we look up to the judge's bench, which is empty, and the jury box, which is also empty at this moment, but we, our eyes make their way down to our right, to the prosecution table. And there in the plaintiff's chair sits Satan, the accuser. Two weeks ago, we read that with the judge's approval, Satan brought this case to question Job's faithfulness to God. Satan suspects that Job's faithfulness to God is because God has set a hedge of protection around Job, that he has blessed him with a large family and a prosperous business and many possessions, a good physical health. And the judge permits Satan to remove these things from Job. And to Satan's dismay, Job holds fast his integrity. He does not charge God with wrong and he does not sin with his lips. Instead, we've heard these words from Job's lips. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we only receive good from the Lord and not evil and disaster? The whole town is just shocked by Job's confession. In the midst of his suffering, his faith rests on God's sovereignty. There are others Uh, alongside Satan at the prosecution table. Next to him sit Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, three of Job's friends, who are looking quite confident and rather smug, because we read last weekend their 26-chapter briefing uh, with their best accusations against Job's character, their best arguments for why Job is guilty. And though their testimonies were full of falsehoods and myths, they did some damage to Job's character witness. Our eyes continue scanning the courtroom. We move across the aisle over to our left and there at the defense table alone sits Job. And his shoulders are slumped. His head is looking down, we see the back of his head and his hair is patchy and bald in some places and we make out some scars on the back of his neck from where he's scraped himself with pottery. But today, Job is his own defense. Suddenly the clock chimes, the hour, the room gets silent Job pushes back his chair and feebly stands up and moves in front of the table and speaks. The final defense of Job's precedent for faithfulness begins and in a matter of seconds, the room is captivated. From this sufferer's mouth comes a beautifully constructed poetic defense in three movements. In chapter 29 of our text today, Job gives his own character witness. He's looking back at his life before the disasters, and he's saying that he had been blessed by God. He was a blessing to his community. People look to him for benevolence and grace and wisdom and help. And then in chapter 30, the second movement, he paints us a picture of the offenses against him in his present sorrow and suffering The outcasts mock him. His friends have deserted him. His grief and anguish gnaw at his insides. And he's met by silence from on high. And then in chapter 31, he makes his final plea, his final defense, his final plea for innocence. He recounts to us how he has remained steadfast and faithful under trial. And so in these three chapters, Job outlines three precedents for faithfulness, three normative patterns that faithful believers follow in the middle of suffering. And there's a lot here. But in our remaining time, I want to walk through these chapters. I want to show you how each chapter establishes a precedent. I want to show you how it works out in Job's life and make some applications to our own life. So here we go, precedent number one, Job chapter 29. Faithful believers are a blessing to their community. Faithful believers are a blessing to their community. When we first heard of Job, he's described as a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. God uses the same words of Job. A blameless man fears God, turns away from evil. And he also adds, there is none like him on earth but we don't get any further explanation of what it looks like for Job to be blameless and upright. But in chapter 29, Job tells us what that means. He recounts his former days and the precedent becomes clear. Faithful believers are a blessing to their community. And it works out in two ways for Job. Look at verses one through six. The Lord gives. Job again took up his discourse and said, oh, that I were as in the months of old. As in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Job begins here recounting his former days, looking back, and he acknowledges that every good and every perfect gift is from above, from the Lord. In the months of old, when God watched over him, God was his friend. He was with Job. He uses this funny phrase when his steps were washed with butter and the rock poured forth oil, which really just means he was prosperous, he was doing well, and he recognizes that it's all a gift from the Lord. But we see that this gift from the Lord is turned into a blessing to others. Number two, the second way that it works out for Job, we are blessed to be a blessing. Verses seven through 25. Look at it. Verse seven, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew and the aged rose and stood the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voices of the nobles was hushed. Verse 11, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. Verse 13, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame and I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Here is what, the, what Job is saying. God had richly blessed him. And as a faithful believer, Job became a conduit, channeling his blessings into the community. Look at Job's standing in society. In verse seven, he goes to the gate of the city, the place where business is done and decisions are made. And the young withdraw and the old stand up in respect Job was well-respected and well-loved by his community. And here's why. In verses 7 through 25, he delivered the poor and the fatherless. He rescued widows. He was eyes to those who couldn't see. He was feet for those who couldn't walk. He was a father to the needy. He broke the fangs of the unrighteous. That's what it means for Job to be blameless and upright. He wore righteousness and he did justice. Job was blessed in order to be a blessing. And Job sets the precedent for our life too. In our own faithfulness, that means that we are to be a blessing to our community. We recognize that all of our earthly possessions, our family, our work, our home, our income, our possessions, they're all a gift from the Lord. And the only way that you and I can rightly relate to our stuff is to recognize that it's a gift. It's not ours in the first place. We are stewards of the blessing that God has given to us. And so that frees us up to extend generously, to give generously to our community, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. So the first precedent that Job sets for us is that faithful believers are a blessing to their community. Job chapter 30 is precedent two. Faithful believers are not exempt from suffering. Faithful believers are not exempt from suffering. For all of Job's blameless and upright behavior and for God to have said, there is no one on earth like Job, you might think that he would be exempt from suffering. You may think that God's blessing and the generosity that he extends to his community would would safeguard him from suffering, but that's not the case. The whole book of Job falls into this category called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is really supposed to help the people of God live faithfully in God's world. And so Job here is helping us know how we live well in the midst of disaster and despair. In fact, if you fast forward to the New Testament, there's a New Testament book of wisdom literature, the book of James. And in James chapter one, verses two and three, he says that we should count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. But faithful believers are not exempt from suffering. Here's how it works out in Job's life. Number one, hurt people hurt people. Verses one through 14. But now they laugh at me men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I have gained from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Look, look down to verse five. These men are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless and nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. Verse nine, and now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. You see what he's saying? The people whom he used to help have now piled on to his pain. People whose fathers he wouldn't have put with the sheepdogs. Men who have been cast out of the community who live in ditches and in caves and holes. They now sing of Job in mockery. Hurt people hurt people. So faithful believers sometimes suffer from the words and actions of those around us. Here's number two. Grief begets groaning. Grief begets groaning. Sometimes we suffer from internal grief. Verse 15, look at it. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity is passed away like a cloud. Verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. Verse 19, God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. So not only are we afflicted from the painful words of other people, from great disasters that suddenly come upon us, but we're also Afflicted by grief. Job doesn't diminish his internal psychological struggles. Terrors overtake him. His soul is poured out within him. And I think it's important for us to see this, to see that it's okay for faithful believers to speak in such a way. Grief and groaning are natural parts of suffering. So if you are really going through it, it's okay. You don't have to pretend that everything's okay. And if you're walking with someone who's really going through it, you don't have to explain it. A hand on a shoulder, your physical presence is enough. Here's the third point. Silence makes it louder. Silence makes it louder. Verse 24. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand? And in disaster cry for help, did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for, dark, for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still days of affliction come to meet me. Verse 28, I, I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. Verse 31, my lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Job is stretching out his hand and he's crying out for help. He wept with those who wept. He grieved with those who were needy. But when he hoped for good, evil came. When he hoped for light, darkness met him. His insides are in constant turmoil and he feels completely alone and he is met by deafening silence that amplifies his pain. That's why our presence matters. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. That's what faithfulness to those who are suffering looks like. And so we've established faithful believers are not exempt from suffering. But suffering has the ultimate goal of producing steadfastness. James chapter one, verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And this trajectory leads us to the third precedent. Precedent number three. Faithful believers remain steadfast under trial. Faithful believers remain steadfast under trial. Chapter 31 is the the third movement of Job's defense. And what we get is his final plea of of innocence. The accusations against him have just been mounting up. And now... He holds fast his integrity. He shows us nine ways that he has remained faithful and steadfast under trial. Let's look at each of them quickly. This is rapid fire, so stay with me. Number one, Job says he has not sinned with his eyes. Verses one through four, look at verse one. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Verse number four, does God not see my ways and number all of my steps? Job's saying, under trial, I didn't sin with my eyes. And I think that in a world full of perverse images, how easy is it for us to sin with our eyes? Number two, Job says that he has not been deceitful. Verse five through eight, look at verse five. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. Verse seven And if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. Job is saying he has not strayed from the path. He's not followed his heart off of the way of the Lord. And I think that in a world that tells us that we should follow our heart, how easy we are to fall into that trap of following our heart and straying from the path. Job says he's not been deceitful. Number three, Job says he's not committed adultery. Verse nine, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, verse 11, that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon and it would burn to the root all my increase. Job is saying that he has been faithful. And in a world full of lust, how easy is it for us to leave the door cracked for sexual sin to creep in? Number four, Job says that he has not looked away from injustice and oppression. Verse 13 if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? This is a hard one for us because it's everywhere around us these days. In a world full of injustice, it's easy to just explain it away or to look the other direction. But faithful believers look in justice full in the face and do what we can to make it right because God will require an account of us on this particular issue. Number five, Job says he's not been stingy. Verse 16, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, verse 20, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Job says, he's not been stingy. He has given freely to those who are in need. How hard is it sometimes in a world of savings accounts and retirement plans to open our hands and be a little bit more generous than we think we should? Verse six, or number six, Job says he's not trusted in his wealth or ability. Verse 24, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. Here's what Job's saying. If my mouth kissed my hand thinking that my hand brought up these plants and brought up this produce and brought up this harvest, then I would have been false. And if I trusted in that wealth, in that gold, I would have been false. In a world of achievement and resumes, how easy is it for us to be really good at boasting in our own achievements and our own abilities? Number seven, Job says, He's not hated his neighbor. Verse 29, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Job says, I haven't rejoiced over the ruin of somebody else. How easy is it for us in a social media age to quickly rejoice over the downfall of someone else and speak quick words of hate? Number eight, Job says he has not hidden his sin. Verse 33. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. This one is important to note here that Job is recognizing his own sin. He's declaring it and he's saying that he wants to do everything in his power to be right with God. In a world that loves to pretend that everything's all good, how easy is it for us to hide what's really happening in our heart and hide what's happening behind our screens sometimes? Number nine, Job says he's not sinned against the land. Verse 38 and 40 If my land has cried out against me, and if its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. Job is saying that he has not even sinned against the land that he works. And I think in a world that lifts up creation care, we can slip into poking fun, but we miss the opportunity to affirm a point of commonality and say, rooted in our belief that God created the world good and we are to steward it responsibly. And thus concludes the words of Job in chapter 31. His defense is absolutely stunning. Nine statements of steadfastness under trial. It's a wide ranging oath of innocence. It's a reality check for each of us. Because I suspect that if we lined our lives up with all of those nine things, we would find ourselves guilty of at least one, if not all of them. But there is, however, a significant difference between the precedents set by Job and the precedence that we live under as believers. Back in the courtroom, we've been so caught up with the beauty and, and stunningness of Job's speech that we have failed to notice that the judge's chair is empty. He receives no advocate. He receives no decision. And he tells us about it in Job chapter 31, verse 35 and 37. Look at it. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown and I would give him an account of all of my steps like a prince, I would approach him. Job wants to know the reason for his suffering. He wants to receive the justice that he had given out. And this is exactly why Job's case sets a precedent for faithfulness for us. Precedent gives a pattern by which we understand similar events. And Job's case opens up the possibility for us to understand another righteous man who suffers innocently. Job's precedent for faithfulness points us to Jesus who was eternally blessed and living in the eternal blessedness of his Father with the Spirit, but the Son took on flesh so that the world might experience the blessedness that he had been experiencing from eternity. And yet, even in his earthly life, the Son of God was not exempt from suffering. Indeed, he came to bear our sin and bear our unfaithfulness. He lived the life that we could not live And he died the death that we deserve for the thousands of ways that we falter under trial. Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross where he was mocked by others, where he suffered indescribable inner grief and turmoil and where his cries of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me are met with an insufferable silence from his father and his God. Job's life was spared, but Jesus's life was willingly offered so that anyone who sins might have an advocate with the Father. So when we sit in our own courtroom, when we are at the defense table, we don't have to sit alone. Jesus Christ is next to us as our advocate. He stands up for us and demands justice for us. And his demand for justice sounds like this. Bradley has placed his total trust in me. Therefore, before you make a judgment, you have to consult with me. Bradley has attached himself to me by faith and I have lived for him the life that he should have lived and I have died the death that he should have died. By raising me to life, you have accepted the payment for Bradley's sin in full. Therefore, justice demands his forgiveness. And so on account of Jesus's greater precedent for faithfulness, we live according to those precedents. We live according to the precedents that Jesus set. Number one, faithful believers can be a blessing to their community only because the faithful one Jesus Christ was a blessing to the world number 2 faithful believers are not exempt from suffering because the faithful one suffered and died for us and calls us to follow him number 3 faithful believers can remain steadfast under trial because the faithful one went to trial on our behalf, and he stands now as our advocate before the Father. James chapter five, verse 11. Behold, we consider those steadfast. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast under trial. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We have seen the compassion and mercy of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. We do not have to stand alone in the trial. And so, brothers and sisters, looking to Jesus, let's be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we have sung of your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. We have seen the faithfulness of your son, Jesus, and we trust that you will be faithful to us in the future. So Father, we ask now that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts that we might know the hope to which we have been called, that we might remember your faithfulness and that we might go forth into the world to be a blessing to our community. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.